This is an ABC podcast. So, Norman, we got a bit of feedback last week that our episode, our episode, which is about a global pandemic uh, nearly three years in, is getting a bit depressing. Oh, well, look, I've, I've got great news for people. You know, so if you want, if you want an uplift, you don't need to worry about rectal masks with Omicron and wet farts. <laughs> God, what a way to start. Um, excuse me, when you say rectal masks, I'm assuming you're referring to pants. Are you telling people that they don't need to wear pants anymore? Well, well, this is, you know, this is the whole issue is, you know, can COVID be spread by farting? <laughs> that oft-talked-about topic. <laughs> yeah, when we first talked about this with the Wuhan variant, the ancestral variant, it was quite clear that it got into your intestinal tract and, you know, the, the farts could well have been a serious issue. But, but of course... Unless that you were a Scot wearing a kilt and had your back lifted, <laughs> uh, most people actually had their bum covered, so we were okay. Now it turns out, it turns out that Omicron, this is, the technical term is tropism, so does it, does it stick to different parts of the body? So it doesn't stick very well to the lungs, so that's why it's a bit milder than Delta. And it turns out it doesn't, it doesn't stick very well to the gastrointestinal tract. And therefore, you're less likely to, presumably, I've not seen any studies on it yet. I mean, this is a failure of global biomedicine, um, but that farting is probably less likely. So just wear your mask on your face. On your face. And if you're Winnie the Pooh or Porky Pig or any other cartoon character that doesn't wear pants, like more power to you. You know, Winnie the Pooh departed before Winnie the Pooh's time. (laughs) Okay, so... (laughs) People who thought this uh, uh, coronacast was getting too serious, be careful what you wish for. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about some practical stuff, though. And one of the things that has happened in the last couple of days, Norman, is that we've seen the states sort of, I guess, sort of jumping ahead of the federal government in terms of recommendations, especially around booster shots. So the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation has recommended a certain interval between your, your first two COVID shots and your booster, and the states have just you know, railroaded straight ahead and gone, no, three months is a sufficient interval. Like what's going on there? Do they even have the expertise to make this call? Yes, sure. They've got lots of expertise. They're just not the national body. And um, in fact, there, there was an acknowledgement by Otagi that it was going to shorten, but it was, they've just got ahead of it really in terms of the shortening of the interval. So why, why are they doing it? Well, they're doing it because of deaths. Is the uh, is that there's a significant percentage? It's hard to actually tell what percentage it is, but of the vaccinated people who are dying, and there are some, it looks as though uh, a lot of them have only had two doses of the vaccine. So we just need to go back a little bit in time. Is that the most vulnerable people to the people who are most vulnerable to serious disease with COVID nineteen or over the age of sixty progressively goes up as the, your age goes up, and people with comorbidities. But let's just take age. And people who were over 60 got AstraZeneca. And we knew, and we just go back to the coronacasts of the middle of, toward, middle of last year or towards August, September, it was quite clear from the Israeli data and others that even with Pfizer, you got a diminution of protection. And that's why they went into the booster campaign and they were one of the first countries to do that. But the British data showed that after a relatively few weeks, there was very little protection to Delta to symptomatic disease left with AstraZeneca. And then, so it was very clear that we had to escalate a booster campaign, particularly for people who'd had AstraZeneca. And about 12 to 14 weeks, three months, was the, was the critical time in terms of having had AstraZeneca. 
And we did not do that. And we had a fairly slow start. Yes, we, we approved boosters. They were available, which is great. But there wasn't an active campaign during Delta. And there was a six-month gap, which means another three months of very little protection. Now, what became clear with Omicron was that you had zero protection against symptomatic disease with Astra after about 12 weeks. And whilst the authorities were saying you still had excellent protection against severe disease with the two-dose vaccines, that's actually not the case. So with AstraZeneca, you had a very significant reduction in protection against hospitalization, and it was pretty significant with Pfizer as well. So two doses, you lost both. You lost protection against infection and symptomatic disease to a much greater extent, admittedly, but you also lost protection to severe disease. So that's why they've introduced them, because a lot of people have been dying for want of a booster dose, one has to assume. And the boosters are really quite profoundly effective against hospitalisation, according to this data out of the UK. Yeah, British data show very clearly that the booster is fantastic. It just gets you right up there in in the 90% level for protection against hospitalisation, which is where it was before. And it also increases, for a while anyway, the protection against infection in some people. So boosters are really doing their job well, and it looks as though that's reasonably sustained. How long for? It's not that clear. And maybe in a future chronocast, we'll talk about the fourth dose controversy in Israel at the moment, where they're continuing with that, but it's really not convincing that it's uh, it's worth doing and there may be a bit of a diminution of effect. But we'll come back to that in a future coronacast. One of the reasons, well, my understanding at least, was that one of the reasons why they hadn't shortened the interval at first was because of supply and logistics. Has that changed now? They say it has. Um, in fact, they all through this process, they've actually said there isn't a problem with supply. They're following the advice of Atagi. So I'm not sure there's been a supply issue. And, uh, and if you, you might remember, we, we looked at this on Coronacast, uh, I, you know, I can't remember what happened yesterday, much a couple of months ago, but certainly, <laughs> certainly during Delta, we had a look at this. And, and certainly in terms of back channels I have into the department who are very reliable, they were saying there's not a, this is not a supply issue. This was an approval issue. So in terms of supply and approval, there was some news that came out yesterday that Novavax, the much-anticipated a vaccine that a lot of people in Australia have been talking about and waiting on for a while has been approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. It hasn't yet been given uh, advice from the Australian Technical Advisory Group on immunisation. But Norman, 90-something percent of Australians over the age of 12 have now had two doses of a vaccine. We've got 51 million doses of Novavax on order. Is it I mean, what's the point at this stage? Well, it's a good question. First of all, it's provisional approval. It's not full approval yet. Let me just describe what uh, Novavax is for people who may have forgotten. So this is a protein vaccine. So in other words, they're actually injecting a bit of the virus. So it's not the whole virus. It's just a, a genetically engineered, manufactured, if you like. I think it's from moths, from cells from moths. It's insect cells that they manufacture from. So it's, it's not the real virus, but it's part of the virus that induces an immune response directly. And their trick is that they've got this adjuvant, which is the thing that stimulates the immune system to actually give you a bigger boost to what's called the antigen, which is the the, the part, the molecular part of the virus. They've got a specially designed nano version of a of an adjuvant, which actually was tested in Australia for safety, and so they they reckon that gives you a very good immune response, and indeed the trials show very good protection up there with uh, Pfizer and Moderna. 
And some people have talked about Novavax as being, well, there's other vaccines that we've already had for some years that use a similar technology. The vaccine itself obviously hasn't been in use for years because it's a new virus. Like, how is it similar to previous vaccines and differ from what we've had for coronavirus so far? Essentially, vaccines pre-mRNA vaccines were either protein or whole virus vaccines. Increasingly, as time has gone on with uh, the increasing sophistication of biotechnology, bioengineered vaccines. So that's right. So if you talk to general practitioners and look at the data from GPs, 55% of GPs report daily inquiries from patients about when is Novavax going to become available. So it suggests that there is pent-up demand for the Novavax vaccine. And so that some of the people who were reluctant hesitant to get Astra or Pfizer or Moderna have been hanging out for Novavax. So you actually may see, and the, the approval is not for a booster. It's not yet approved for booster and it's not yet approved for adolescents. This approval is for the primary schedule. In other words, an initial round of vaccination when you've never been vaccinated before. And it's quite likely that many thousands of Australians will come forward now who are in that five, seven, of people who have not been vaccinated at all, is that might actually shrink to a very small number now that Novavax is available. So I was just talking about our huge vaccination rate that we've already achieved and we were talking before about boosters, but in spite of that, we are still seeing a huge amount of pressure on our health system at the moment. And Victoria called a code brown this week and not to cheapen what's a really horrible emergency, Norman, but it did make me think of your brown trousers. I think they've been listening to Coronacast. So what what that means is that it's an external emergency basically putting pressure on the health system and that they sort of pared back their offering to cancel a lot of elective surgery. And elective is a terrible name for things that really don't feel elective when you're the person who's waiting for them. No, that's right. And there are people who, through the course of this pandemic, not just here but overseas, who've not had operations which, as you absolutely say, are sound elective but may not be. For example, a double mastectomy when you're carrying the BRCA gene for breast cancer, the breast cancer, one of the breast cancer genes. These are the things that, that would have happened and, um, and, and create a problem. And by not doing elective surgery, you could create a situation where somebody ends up with acute disease and much sicker than they otherwise would have been. Yeah, we've had people writing into the ABC telling us that they've been in queues for joint replacements or pacemaker insertions that have been put back because of these pressures on the healthcare system. Yeah, and I, I heard the other day um, somebody who's got atrial fibrillation, so that's a highly irregular heartbeat, which can lead to heart failure, can even lead to clots in the heart and stroke. And one of the treatments for this is cardioversion, where they shock the the heart back into normal rhythm. And that's now considered, particularly, well, at least in this particular hospital, the person was going to, to be an elective procedure and they couldn't have it. So this is obviously a really precarious position for our healthcare system. And so... What I'm interested to know is what the modellers are saying. We heard earlier this week that New South Wales hospitalisation rates were starting to decline. Is that a true trend? Are Are we over the peak of this wave yet? I spoke to Professor Alan Saul at the Burnett Institute, who's been looking at this closely. It's true that New South Wales, at least at the moment... Has, the growth has levelled off. So remember, this is the growth has levelled off. So it's not exponential at, at the moment. But the question is, why has that happened? Because the epidemic curve, it's not convincing yet that the epidemic curve has flattened. 
So in other words, you're still getting lots of cases coming through the system and therefore you would expect a delay in hospitalisation. So when the peak occurred in the UK, for example, hospitalisations have continued to be pretty high in the UK in the weeks following. So why might it not be growing? Because it's growing in Victoria. It's trebled in the ACT in the, in, in the last week or so, which has surprised a lot of people with high vaccination rates. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Um, so it might be levelling off. Now, it may be that the, the changed admission criteria that they introduced a couple of weeks ago, that that's now starting to show in the figures so that people are not coming into hospital who otherwise might have. It's not clear why this is happening, but it, it can't be due to the case numbers peaking because it's not clear they have yet. And we have less visibility on case numbers. We've talked the last couple of weeks about the fact that we're sort of shifting away from PCR tests as sort of the main way that we're finding out if people have COVID. There's more reliance on rapid antigen tests at home, but getting your hands on a rapid antigen test is no mean feat. And there seems to be, well, there was some anecdotal evidence that we've heard that they're potentially not very, it, they vary in their reliability, I suppose is the kindest way to put it. Yeah, well, we went back to the TGA because one of the things, and we may have spoken about this before, one of the things with the TGA that people don't realise is that for many years now, long before this current government, the TGA's instruction from government has been to trust what manufacturers tell you unless it's a high-risk device. So if it's a heart valve, a wire that goes into the heart or something like that. It wasn't always the case, by the way, but you know, those things are taken much more seriously by the TGA than, than other devices. So if it's a low risk, considered a low risk device, they take what the manufacturer says on trust. So when you see the sensitivity rates on the, uh, on the TGA website... Sensitivity being basically how accurate... That's right. ...this is at detecting COVID. Although they've gone through the data and they told us they do go through the data, they haven't done independent testing. So they've taken it on the manufacturer's word. Now, the, Dor the Doherty Institute has been commissioned to do independent testing and uh, we haven't seen many published. I think we've seen some evidence that they found that they were good for Omicron, but we haven't yet seen sensitivity tests, the results of sensitivity tests... And it's possible that they vary a lot between them and what the manufacturer says might not be actually what what happens. And so there'll be some manufacturers who are doing the right thing and there'll be some who maybe not. We don't know. Uh, they may all be fine, but there's a bit of variation. There's some, there's some muttering in the market that the saliva tests might not be as good as the nose or throat swabs and that maybe throat swabs are better than nose swabs. I mean, there's all this going around. It's just a swirl going around. So this is all anecdote, I have to say. And I'm hearing from uh, more than one infectious disease specialist who looks, who's following up with healthcare workers and when they can go back to work and so on, that they're rat negative, but PCR positive. And they go rat negative for several days while they're PCR positive, And then they, then they kick in with a, a positive rat test. Now, that could be something that we've talked about before on Coronacast, which is infectivity is that the one thing that ra rapid antigen tests are supposed to be good at is finding the few days in your infectious cycle when you're actually at your most contagious. So it may not matter that you were rat negative while PCR positive because you may not have been infectious and then you kick in with your positive rat test when you're actually at your most contagious. And then it disappears afterwards faster than the PCR test. So there are, there are a few things about rapid antigen tests that we just need to take a bit of care about. It's not something to panic over. It's not something to stop doing them. 
but we probably urgently need some independent testing results just so that we know which ones are the most reliable. Because when they did that for N95 masks, they took it on trust, and now about 1,500 brands of N95 masks have been taken off the market. Either the manufacturer has done it themselves because they know now that the TGA is testing, or the TGA... It's not been taken off the market, by the way. They've just removed the approval for marketing because they were fraudulent, didn't do what they say they were. So you've got to be really careful with N95 masks as well. So for the listener at home, if they've got rat tests, don't chuck them out. But basically, if you've got active symptoms, even if you're testing negative, I mean, anyway, you should be taking care and and not mixing with other people if you've got symptoms that could be COVID. That's right. And the British um, have just, the British are fantastic with this stuff, partly because they're seeing so much, is the British have published uh, the symptom pattern with Omicron. And they're saying they're finding much more in the terms of sore throat, cough, a little bit of fever, and much less compared to Delta, that, that is. So more sore throats than Delta, more cough than Delta, a bit more fever than Delta, and much less in the way of loss of taste and smell. Although I certainly know people who've had it here who have lost their taste and smell for a little while anyway. And fewer COVID farts. Well, just a little bit of an uptick. You know, so the, the jury's still out on that one, but I'm confident that good pair of underpants, you're away. <laughs> Oop. Well, speaking of people who enjoy fart jokes, can we talk about kids and COVID? Because I don't know if it's just the groups that I mix in, but I'm getting a lot of people asking me very pointed questions about what evidence there is, especially around vaccination and about schools going back. And I think it's the fact that people are really, kids are able to be vaccinated now. And I think that people are examining the data in a way that they never did before because they're they're really making a choice about their own kid and the risks versus benefits of vaccinating them. Yeah. So there's there's no doubt that kids, even with a third dose, a third of the dose of Pfizer, do you know, do get very good immune response, equivalent to uh, adults. So it's a good thing to do. So there's this debate about whether or not school should be delayed. There is another answer to this, of course, which is shortening the interval period. So the interval period at the moment is eight weeks. Atagi has, on the in the Atagi approval of this, they've said, well, in an outbreak, you could go down to three weeks. So you could actually shorten the interval for children. Um, I'm not saying that that's what we're saying that should happen, but you should certainly... It's open to um, GPs, for example, if they wanted to do that, to do that because it's within the Atagi advice. And that would get you more children fully covered quick, faster um, in terms of protecting their health and well-being. How about how much kids do or don't drive transmission in terms of schools going back? That seems to be a really active debate. Yesterday in National Cabinet, it sounded like there was no real agreement within the states. The states were going to each make their own decisions. And on one hand, if you're a person working from home with children, you know that that's tricky and there's lots of benefits for kids being in school, obviously, but perhaps not just the risk to the kids themselves, but their their ability to then kind of drive transmission in the community when they're mingling at school. This is a, this is a really difficult issue. The kids do drive transmission. It's not huge, but they do drive transmission. And we covered this a lot in 2020 because there was this huge debate about whether or not schools should be shut or not. The issue here is protecting children. A small number do get sick. It's much smaller than adults, much smaller than adolescents. But the vaccine is really to protect them as they move forward. And that's the the issue here. And it's hard to say you should cut, you, you should shut schools when we're allowing some super spreading, potential super spreading events to 
to happen. One possible explanation for why the ACT is seeing treble the number of hospitalizations in a week and has the same hospitalization rate as Victoria when they've got 99% of people immunized is that there was a, super, a potential super spreading event, which is the summer gnats, which is a petrol head event a few days a few a few days ago in the ACT, which might with no vaccine mandate, and it may well be that the ACT is paying the price of that event. There's no there's no proof of that, but there are questions to be asked. And why would you? So you're going to delay schools yet you allow people who are car enthusiasts to come together. So bringing it back to schools, then what what is the answer then? I, I tell you, I've, I've, I've bowed out of this one because I think it's just so hard. I, I think that if you've got well-ventilated classrooms, you've got CO2 monitors to actually measure the level of ventilation, you've got windows open in summer, you've got mask wearing, if you actually take the basic precautions, the risk becomes even lower. And then we're layering vaccination on top of that now, which is something we couldn't do last year with kids. That's right. There's a lot of frustration amongst parents because they they have been finding it hard getting their kids in for the first dose despite what the government's been saying and I, and I just wanted I just wanted to pick up one thing before we go Tegan and one and this is the no, notion of letting it rip and you get the natural omicron infection just as good as a vaccination move on and very quickly there's been a, a pretty good study of this in mice and in humans and omicron compared to delta really only protects against omicron doesn't give you the depth and breadth of the immunity that a vaccine gives you. So whilst Delta gave you some protection, cross-variant protection, so if you'd had Delta, you got some protection against Omicron. If you've had Omicron, there is no expectation that you will actually be protected against other variants. doesn't seem to occur. Although when you get it on top of a vaccine, it does give you a good kick along. So this is a study that hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. Like you say, it looks pretty good at face value, but why would Delta protect against Omicron, but Omicron not protect against Delta? It's all to do with the antigens on the surface of the, you know, the, the, the molecules on the surface of the virus and how they're stimulating the immune system. It's all about that. So you're saying it does protect you against future Omicron infections though. Like what about these people who sort of want to basically just get it over and done with? Well, it doesn't get them over and done with because um, the next variant will not be a variant of Omicron. So the past variants have popped up on their own and been their own Variant, nothing to do with a progression. It could be a variant of Omicron. Like there's so much of it around now, it does stand to reason that it could rise from Omicron. Yeah, but that would counter most of the history of the pandemic so far. It's if you're going to if you're going to be betting on this, you'd bet on it being not a variant developed from Omicron, which means that you will not be protected against the next variant if you've had a natural infection against Omicron. But for now, like we're not that variant hasn't popped up yet. No, but Delta's still around. So what, what seems clear is that if you've had an Omicron infection, you are pretty well protected against other Omicron. You may get the odd person who's had two Omicron infections, but I think it's quite rare at the moment. Um, the data are not clear at all on that, but it looks as though you're protected at least for a while against Omicron. But there's still Delta around. And so Delta has not disappeared. This is a Delta outbreak as well as, a, as an Omicron one. Yes, Omicron's taking over. So if you were to get infected with Delta down the track, during the summer, as there's so much virus around and we basically let things rip, you would not be well protected against Delta from these data. Good to know. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's Coronacast. Yes, we're still weekly, at least for the next little while, but you can actually still talk to us if you want to by leaving us a message going to abc.net.au slash coronacast. And we'll see you next week. See you then. 